guess what? This is Carolyn Glick, and we're doing the Middle East News Hour, not in uh, my office at home and not at my mom's house like I've been doing for the past two weeks. Uh, I'm here in Washington, D.C. at the Center for Security Policy, where, believe it or not, I'm an adjunct uh, senior fellow for the Middle East, and I have been since 2004. Um, and I'm here visiting with, uh, with our people here in Washington, and I have the pleasure and the distinct privilege of meeting as well with uh, Cameron Consarinia. Consarinia? Perfect, perfect. Okay, perfect. and Cameron is the policy director for the National Union uh, for Democracy in Iran, right? I yes, got that right? that's right. Okay, and as you all know, we here in we here in Israel, we in Israel are very keen uh, to see the Iranian people actually um, get what they want, which is freedom. And so we're going to talk a bit about uh, freedom in Iran today, and all in the shadow of the looming threat of a nuclear-armed Iran and its threats against Israel. We have a commonality of interest. It's very deep. Uh, among Israelis and, and the people of Iran. And so we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the potential for those relations in the future as well. Is that good? That sounds great. Thank All right. You so much so but that. first, before we do that, can you tell us a little bit about your organization and what you guys sure. are doing here in Washington? Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, as uh, Carolyn kindly uh, mentioned, I should say it's a pleasure to be with you. And, it's uh, great to have you. <laughs> I'm a terrible, be, terrible uh, host. Uh, no, uh, on your show. <laughs> um, uh, I'm the policy director of the National Union for Democracy in Iran. We're a, a nonprofit, uh, nonpartisan organization of Iran. Americans based here in Washington uh, that promotes the cause of, of human rights and democracy in Iran. Uh, you know, the, the people of Iran have sort of long looked to Iranians abroad, obviously in the United States, the Iranian American community to reflect their desires for uh, a secular democracy for a country that is a normal country without the Islamic Republic, which, uh, you know, in which they can live like citizens in most any other country in the world. And unfortunately, because so often in the media, this is not taken seriously, it falls upon us as Iranian Americans to reflect their desires here. So in there's a national Iranian American Council, NIAC, which um, has been linked to the, the regime that uh, has been credibly accused of being the lobby of the Iranian regime. So can you talk to me a little bit about them and their role here and well, you how know, you deal with them? Sure. There's this broader concept beyond that group in particular, uh, which many refer to as the Iran lobby. It's probably better termed as the Islamic Republic's lobby, but mm -hmm. for shorthand, the Iran lobby works better. Um, and it's a group of academics, journalists, analysts, uh, who all, they may not be on the payroll of the regime directly, uh, but they're all in some way, whether it's ideologically, familially, interest-wise connected to the regime. And what they do is in the West, they promote a certain view of the regime, which is generally much more positive than the realistic version, the, the version that you may see or that the Iranian people see or certainly that we see as Iranian Americans. And they tend to be affiliated with this reformist or moderate sort of wing, if you will, of the regime, which they've sort of promoted for the past 20 years as, look, these guys, they're not as radical as, for example, Ali Khamenei or Khomeini. You can deal with these moderates. Raisi. Raisi is, is certainly not one of those, right. but you know, they had the Javod Zarifs, the sort of smiling propagandist, Hassan Rouhani, who they had as president for eight years, who, you know, we were told was going to bring in this new era of reform. And he it started more with Mohammed Khatami, right? Exactly. That they pretended that he was a revolutionary That's right. guy. That's right. He, he was actually called the smiling cleric. That was, you know, the sort of the, the moniker given to him. And so these groups, they generally promote that wing or they haven't promoted that wing of the regime. Uh, and, and Nayak has certainly done uh, its fair share of that. Uh, I think largely those individuals, especially that organization has been discredited because people look at the reality on the ground and then they look at the analysis and the suggestions of these groups and individuals and they say, 
this, this just doesn't match up. Well, I don't know. There seems to be a very large uh, cross-section of American policymakers who desperately have wanted since the Reagan administration to believe that there are moderates and hardliners in Iran. And so NIAC has really been uh, a focal point in pushing that narrative that you can make a deal with, the, I mean, the whole. Yeah. Well, it, it's, it's a great point that you make because I think some people think that this just goes back to the JCPOA, but unfortunately, it's been almost since the very inception of the regime, this concept that you can make a deal with the Islamic Republic, this concept that you can actually get it to change well, its Iran behavior. Contra was the first yeah. time, right? Yeah. And, but if you actually look at the regime's behavior for those 42 years, what you'll see is that, no, you, you can't change it. You have uh, the, the taking of the hostages, and you have the Kobar Towers, you have the EMEA attack in Buenos Aires, you have, I mean, just this week, on the attack on, on. On, on the Mercer ship uh, uh, near Iran. You know, it, everything, it's, these are not tactical decisions that the regime takes. It's part of a long-term strategy against the West. So um, when we were talking last week before this interview, um, I was asking you about the Iranian people and how it is, at, first of all, what percentage do you think of the Iranian public opposes the regime? I mean, if you had to make a guess and then... Well, well I think we, we don't really, we don't have to guess. If we look at, for example, just the, the, the election that happened just about a month ago, um, you saw roughly 75 to 80% of people boycott the election at an extremely low turnout. Um, so I think if you just take that as an indication uh, pardon me, uh, of those who are against the regime, that's indicative. Um, there's been independent polling done, for example, by sources in Europe, totally uh, unrelated to the regime, um, which show that around that number, 75, 80, getting close to 85, 90% are opposed to the regime. So it still does have, you know, it would be silly to say that nobody supports them. Um, you probably have 10 to 20% of people who, for whatever reason, ideological, financial, support the regime. But the vast, vast majority uh, are against the Islamic Republic. You know, I find it sort of curious in the sense that Iran is a tyranny. It's dictatorship. They control all of the school curriculum. Yeah. They control all the mosques. They control yeah. the the newspapers, yeah. television. And you'd think that they would have more success in indoctrinating the people. I mean, you see uh, Lebanon, Al-Manar, they're able to rally the faithful. You see uh, Al Jazeera was acting as the, you know, as, as the mouthpiece for Al-Qaeda from the time that it was founded in 1996. So why is it that the Iranian regime isn't able through its control over information and school curriculum and patronage and all the rest? Why is it that so few Iranians support the regime? I think it's for, for two reasons. One, Iranians now increasingly look to their pre-revolutionary past as a source of pride. And they say that we once lived a different way. We once had a different type of lifestyle. We once had uh, an But Iran. most Iranians don't know that, right? That, that's true. And, but it's really, and the reason that they are sort of aware now is because of the second reason, uh, which is there's been an influx of information coming from abroad. It's all illegal. It's all banned. Um, but foreign-based satellite stations, many of them based in London, for example, the, the VOA Persian run by the US government was one example. It's certainly now gone downhill, but private stations like Manoto, Iran International, they broadcast directly into Iran, again, totally illegally, but Iranians have built up this network of individual satellites where they can get the feeds and watch these channels. And they see they see documentaries about uh, the time of the Shah, the pre-revolutionary time. They see a time when Iran had good relations with Arab countries in the Persian Gulf, with Israel, with the United States, with basically every country. And so these two factors, one, um, their previous life, basically the life that their parents and grandparents lived, uh, they see that through the second point, which is this new influx of information. Um, and I think that it, it's been that new information that they have, which sort of 
ensures them from being, you know, penetrated by the regime's propaganda because they say we don't have to, you know, all this sort of rabid religiosity that is being forced down our throats. This is not how we want to live. We want to live how our parents live. We want to have a passport that allows us to travel around the world and be have peaceful relations with our neighbors, be they Jewish, be they Arab, uh, and you know, just live normal lives. In fact, this this normal life is a hashtag that's often trending on Iranian social right. media. They say we just want a normal life. That's that's what they want. Well, I mean, the other aspect of this is, of course, the regime's failure. I mean, we see Absolutely. the water shortages all over the country. We see people starving to death. Yeah. We see privation levels that are unspeakable. We see their failure to deal with corona. I mean, it, so how did, I mean, obviously that impacts people, but I mean, has that been growing over time? The sort of fail of the regime has it all is it all collapsing now? What? No, that that that's an uh, additional point uh, as to why the regime no longer has support. Because for a while, it was able to provide some sort of economic sustenance to Iranians. So there was still. And even today, there is some semblance of a middle class, much of which is basically living off uh, the, the basic the, the benefits that the Shah, you know, sort of set in place for the country. A lot of the infrastructure, the technology, the, the sort of robust economy. Um, but even that, even now, that is dwindling, if not dissipating, has dissipated entirely. As you say, for example, in some regions, water doesn't come out of the taps. I mean, it's it's a failed state in many regards. So when when the regime, you know, forces sort of ideology at you, but you're able to live a semi comfortable life. Some people are perhaps willing to accept that when it's forcing this ideology upon you and you can't feed your kids and you're getting shot in the street and uh, you can't even travel abroad. It's sort of, you know, these things all add up to say this is not a regime I want to stand. It doesn't give me one single good thing. Because the other aspect to that, of course, is that the regime, um, I mean, they I understand that they were using the entire poppy crop of Afghanistan and Iran for a while, that they were sort of almost encouraging the Iranian people to become drug addicts. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, drug addiction is, is a huge problem in Iran, as is prostitution. Um, and, uh, you know, for, it, it, it's one of the, the, which should not be surprising, but it's one of the huge hypocrisies of this regime, which claims to be uh, pious and devout and God-fearing. Uh, and they, you know, they run drug smuggling rings through the IRGC across the Middle East, as, as you mentioned, they used Afghanistan and then the poppy, uh, you know, a crop there. I mean, it's really it's it's shameful what they've done to Iran, which which was a young, vibrant, happy nation, and so many young Iranians now are forced to turn to drugs. Young Iranian women forced to turn to prostitution. Young Iranians actually, and even you know, middle aged people sell their organs to feed their families. I mean, it's 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 devastating, and it's you know, so many Iranians just live in in shame because. Again, they compare what they were before. And in fact, this is another slogan or sort of hashtag, which is Chibudim Chishulim, what we were and, and what we've become. Uh, and, and it's just this comparison, this juxtaposition, which is so raw um, for Iranians that, you know, they used to, you know, you know, they, they were growing, developing economy. The Iranian economy was growing at a rate that surpassed that of Japan, West Germany, South where, Korea. At the time of the revolution. Uh, yeah, just before the revolution in the, in the 1970s. And then they get to a point where, as you say, so many are addicted to drugs, forced to prostitution, selling their organs. They don't have water. Um, it's it's very devastating. If you're a university student in Iran and you are in a real, you know, thing like a engineering what, what level of education are you getting in an engineering system? It, actually, the education right system is still decently good. Again, that's another one of the byproducts of what the Shah set up, which was universal education. Uh, you know, today, the Islamic Republic, or and unfortunately, Iran is sort of known for, if it's known for a core, it's the IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. 
pre-revolution, the cores that Iran was known for, at least internally, uh, were the health core, the education core. Uh, the Shah sort of set up these systems by which uh, people would travel, young people, as a, you know, in lieu of military service, would serve as sort of health members of the health core, education core. So brought, Iran is always focused on education. So the, the remnants today are still there. Of course, at the beginning of the revolution, they closed the schools and the universities for about a year, uh, similar to what Mao did in China, sort of cultural revolution to is, uh, Islamicize it and really revolutionize uh, the curriculum. Um, but from a you know, technical perspective, engineering, science, mathematics, it's still decently good um, in Iran. Uh, unfortunately, many of those people who graduate, um, they go unemployed because the economy is so bad. So you have PhDs you know, sweeping streets, driving taxis, and not there's anything wrong with those careers, obviously, but they're so overly educated. That's not what they were getting. Yeah, that's not what they wanted to get. And, you know, and, and it's getting to a point where, for example, the, the most re one of the most recent tragedies was the Ukrainian airliner. And these were young Iranian students, top of their class. You know, if you think of, quote, the best and the brightest, these young people represented that. And they were forced to go abroad as part of the massive brain drain that Iran has faced. And they were going back to Canada and even there, they, they were just leaving the country and they were shot out of the sky. So right. they can't find jobs. They're murdered in, in the skies over Iran. There's really no opportunity because of, of, of what the regime has forced on them. So right now we're facing uh, protests where? How widespread are they? Yeah. How do you relate to the protests that are going on now? Are they mm -hmm. nationwide? Are mm -hmm. they in Khuzestan mm -hmm. only? So, with so a little this, bit in Tehran? What's yeah. going on? So the protests in Iran are generally the case that they start in one area for one particular reason, which is generally not necessarily political, and then they immediately become political and they spread. So uh, in this instance, they started, as you said, in, in the southern Iranian province of Khuzestan, which is an oil-rich province, one of should be, I mean, technically is Iran's wealthiest province because of the oil on which it sits, um, but that money obviously doesn't go to the people. Um, and it started, as I said earlier, because of the lack of water. So the water either doesn't come out of the tap or when it does, it's full of sediment and dirt. It's basically not potable. Um, and that started this protest. And this is happening in a summer where temperatures surpassed 120 degrees Fahrenheit. So people are literally scalding. Um, there's one particularly disturbing video which sort of circulated on Iranian social media was a young girl who has a skin condition. And it was said if she doesn't shower twice a day, her, her skin, you know, starts to peel. And it was like a, uh, like a lizard. It was, it was just so. She was in Khuzestan. Yeah, she was in Khuzestan. She just started to, you know, her skin was peeling. It was devastating. So obviously then people direct their anger at the regime because they know whose fault this is. And so then they quickly become political. What is the problem with the water? Because it's also an Isfahan yeah. there. Yes, probably. exactly. Yeah, these these provinces, uh, it, this again goes back to uh, the regime and its sort of mismanagement. So again, after the revolution, they changed for the agricultural and water policy. So they built thousands of illegal dams, illegal wells. They didn't have scientists doing taking the proper environmental measures. So Iran's water is simply drying up. You have famous lakes, huge lakes like Urumia in the north of the country which have almost entirely dried up. The water is simply gone. Um, and one reason for that is because water is being siphoned off by politicians of the regime for their pet projects in their districts or their areas. You know, I read this thing, I think it was Tahiri, but I'm not sure where he was explaining that before the revolution, Iran, because it was scarce, it had scarce water supplies, that it did agriculture, but it was export crops that weren't, yeah. that didn't require a lot of water. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, and they would import the wheat. They would import the main staples that mm. you required to for, for just to eat. And the and that Khomeini said, no, 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 no. We want to be self-reliant. So right. he completely switched the That's agriculture. right. This this was part of this sort of revolutionary ideology of, of self-sufficiency and no interaction with the outside world, which is now causing Iranians to have no water and no food. And so no So do they not import wheat? 
Into uh, Iran? They, they or still do, do. I don't know on the specifics of, of weed or specific sort of import-export policy, but it's to your point, it's part of this broader insistence on we want to have no reliance on the outside world, and that's simply causing Iranians to starve and, and to have no water. Um, but but to your point, these these now so the sort of chance first started with. I'm thirsty, we want water. The water's not coming out of the taps. And they quickly become political. They quickly grow into death to the dictator, death to the Islamic Republic. And how widespread, um, how, how much have they been catching on in other places? Uh, so, they, so they move from Khuzestan to the north of the country, to the Azerbaijan province, to large cities like Tabriz. They've now moved into some of Iran's major cities like Esfahan, Karaj on the outskirts of Tehran, and now to the capital of Tehran. Um, and you know, one thing that is sort of talked about a lot in these, in these protests, I think it's important to mention, is they, they're often viewed through an ethnic lens, because Khuzestan, is, as you may, as you as you do know, uh, has a, a decent uh, sort of a proportion of Arab Iranians as an ethnic minority. There, there oh, was. Wow, yeah, there are there are other Iranians. There are Lords. Back is very diverse. It's it's often misreported that it's you know all Arabs there. It's it's and not Sunni. the case. Yeah, and many of them are Sunnis. Um, and there, that that's it might be the main source of discrimination is the religious discrimination as opposed to an ethnic discrimination. Um, so some people sort of said, no, this is a, about ethnic separatism, or they want to break away from Iran. Do they speak Arabic, or do they uh, speak? They Persian? generally speak both Arabic and Persian. Um, uh, but the, you you receive videos of people from inside Iran. They're speaking Arabic, and they say, no, we don't want to break away from Iran. We just want water. We just want to. We just want freedom. We just want to be able to breathe. And so this is what the Islamic Republic has done: is that it has has done its its darndest to turn Iranians against one another, turn Arabs against uh, Persians, turns Arabs against Bakhtiaris, turn Arabs against uh, Turkmen or Lors, whatever. Um, but for 2,500 years, Iran has, has existed as a unitary state where all these groups have lived together in harmony when they don't have a regime on top of forcing this religious ideology and radicalism on it and turning citizen against citizen. Because, I mean, that is the question is, you know, your your contention is that the Iranian people are the Iranian people, yeah. and there are the Azeris in them, and the Baluchis yeah. in them, and the Afghans and others, but that they all view themselves as as Iranians as well. I, I, there, there's a very strong source of national pride. Is which this new? I, I think that in in recent, you know, you had it before the revolution, and but it's sort of because it was a normal country, if you will, people then turned to things like radical Islam as their ideology, or or Marxism, or sort of. Iranianness was for the political activists in the street seemingly less important. Uh, the Islamic Republic has done everything in its power to force political Islam and to take away everything that is Iranian from from uh, from people. You know, they change the names of streets and they ban certain holidays and they sort of censor pre-Islamic history. Because of that, the Iranian people have sort of come back with a gusto, looking to their uh, their ancient heritage, their very Iranian heritage. Um, and, and this sort of started, um, as I mentioned a few days ago when we talked, uh, at Pasargot or Persepolis, the, the tomb of Cyrus the Great. And there was a sort of... Um, what year was this? This was 2016-17. Okay. And there was this explosion of, of nationalism, which sort of spread, especially amongst the youth. It was a very powerful force. You now see you know, Iranians, as opposed to naming their children as maybe their parents or grandparents did, Reza or Ali or Hussein for the, the Shiite imams, they named them, uh, you know, Kaveh or Khashoyar for the ancient Iranian kings, the monarchs from the Achaemenid dynasty or, or previous dynasties. Uh, and so there's a very strong nationalistic sense because at that time, uh, in the ancient time periods, 
it was Iran, but you still had these tribes, these minorities, and they lived as one as Iranians. Well, under the Persian, under the, uh, under the Persian under Empire, the, exactly. In fact, just one interesting story. You know, you 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 you've definitely heard of the national epic of Iran, the Shahnameh, the, the Book of Kings, which is written by Ferdowsi and is credited with reviving the Persian language by taking out sort of the, the Arabic words and Arabic roots. And this is reviewed by everyone as like the national story, uh, the national epic. Uh, and one of the main evil, the main evil characters, a character called Zahok, who's the evil ruler who people now compare to Khamenei. They actually call him Zahok Zamwana, the, the Zahok of our time. And he is famous for uh, having this, this evil tendency of eating children, eating young people, oh, nice. uh, similar, <laughs> similar to Khamenei. Mm-hmm. And um, the, there's a cook in his palace who ends up helping these kids to escape. And in the story, those people who escape end up becoming the Kurds. Uh, and they're sort of this young, vibrant, uh, you know, Iranian group. And so even in the most ancient epic of, of Iranian identity, you know, these minority groups like the Kurds, they have this powerful role because it's been one unified nation for thousands of years. And there are obviously those who are, you know, support separatism, but they're a very, very small minority, in my view, and, and ethnic you know, Iranian Arabs, Iranian Kurds, Iranian Turks, you know, they want to live as Iranians. Their identity cultural is secondarily important to them and it's relevant to them. And they speak that language perhaps as well. Um, but in a normal country where the Islamic Republic weren't trying to divide citizen against citizen, neighbor against neighbor, they would want to live as Iranians. You know, um, so now you have protest movements, as you said, they're really spreading all around the country. How long have they been going on for? This particular one, about two weeks now. And, um, and we don't know, uh, where this will lead. But we do know a couple of things. We know that we've had mass protests against the regime already. I mean, I'm thinking back to 1997. There Mm -hmm. may have been Mm -hmm. even before that 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 I'm not thinking of. But it seems like every couple of years and now, I think with increasingly increasing frequency in recent years, you have these mass protest movements and they're massively repressed. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, people who who's, who stand with the Iranian people and recognize that you are really the key mm-hmm. to bringing down the most dangerous regime, mm-hmm. uh, certainly in the Middle East and, and one of the most dangerous regimes in the world, um, we, we see that it's not going anywhere, mm. that people get massacred, mm. they get massively repressed, and then, and then they're repressed. Yeah. And the regime goes on spending its centrifuges, exporting its terrorism worldwide. Um, so first of all, A, what do you think the prospects for this protest movement are? And B, how do we help them? How, mm-hmm. What will bring down this regime? Mm-hmm. So you, you make an excellent point, which is this has been going on for some time, but at least 20 years now you've seen active popular rebellion against the regime at different scales. You, you said exactly right. It first started in the late 1990s with a student movement. Right. Um, that Khatami, the moderate, exactly. put down exactly. and quelled it and exactly. killed them all. Yeah. And, and they were on the street. They said, Khatami, you know, come to our aid. They just asked him to come and stand with them. And he, of course, refused. Uh, and he was the head of the National and Security Council. And he was a Council. moderate. Yeah, How could yeah, that be? Yeah, he was right? a moderate. Was yeah, moderate. exactly. Uh, and he said he slaughtered people with, with no, um, you know, with no remorse. Um, and so it started there. So that, you know, late 1990s. And then you see another big movement in 2009, of course, the famous Green Movement. Right. We have Nedal Rosotan killed, who becomes sort of the symbol. Um, so, you know, 10 years. And, and then, leaders. You had leaders. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You have leaders in the street. You have leaders in the opposition. Usavi and- yeah, yeah. This, and, and actually, that's 
one of the reasons that it, in, in the view of many, including myself, that it failed was because people, some people at the beginning looked to Musavi as a leader. And, then and they, his wife in particular. Yeah, right? and, and his wife, they said she was this very, you know, lovely person. And she was also a moderate. Um, but they, they were behind the people in the sense that uh, they were behind, the, they were not at the same you know, level of the Iranian people. The Iranian people move very quickly from where is my vote and I want my vote back to I want my country back and we want to take this regime down. And people like Mir Hussein Musavi and his wife, Zahra Navan, they were still very loyal to the regime. So they were never, never able, never willing to take that step. And so that's why uh, the movement sort of fell apart. Because that and also the Barack, Barack Obama yeah, didn't Yeah, well, you, you know, you know that, election, that election was 2009 uh, and people in Iran said, we didn't lose the 2009 election. We lost the 2008 election because when Barack Obama came uh, into office and refused to stand with us, that was the death knell for that movement. Uh, and it was very clear because once, once the Islamic Republic saw that President Obama was not going to stand with protesters, they said, okay. They went into the streets, they, they shut it down, they clubbed people, they shot people, they had snipers in the roofs killing people because they knew that the Obama administration wasn't going to do anything. Um, so you had the student movement and then 10 years later, the green movement. And so you have these sort of 10 year intervals. And then we and then now the intervals are getting uh, sort of uh, smaller and smaller. In between each protest movement, there is a smaller time interval. So we have 2016, 2017, 2019. And so they're, they're coming closer together. And so as a, as a civil disobedience movement, this is sort of the way that things, they, they take time unfortunately. And so, but they're growing closer together. And I sort of draw a timeline between 2016, 17, when we talked about the, the Persepolis sort of nationalist uprising mm -hmm. where people chanted, Cyrus is our father, Iran is our motherland. They chanted for Iran's monarchs and things of that nature. Until today, these are all part of one sort of ongoing rebellion. Um, the most recent big one we saw was in 2019, November, uh, which is sort of called the Iran massacre. And this is when they shut off the internet and in the span of three to four days, they massacred more than 1,500 people. So as you say, extremely brutal. I mean, unprecedented, really. Now now analysis coming out said so that could be closer to six or 7,000 that they killed in that short time period. Um, but how does this succeed? Now, when these protests grow more and more connected, more and more united, and they're more and more frequent, and with the addition of an international sanctions campaign on the regime, and the regime has less cash to suppress these protests, um, Sort of that nexus of supporting the Iranian people but and pressuring the, the regime. Who, who, well, how, so, how does this work? I mean, there, is there a decentralized leadership? Mm -hmm. Are there no leaders? Is it so, everybody screaming together? So I, I would say you sort of have two or three categories of leaders that you have street level leaders, if you will, who are organizing the police. Okay, tomorrow we're going to this street, or let's go to this, uh, uh, you know, a plaza. Um, you have that, and that's coming together, and organically that comes together. You have then members of the opposition, right? the, the, the secular democratic opposition, uh, who have political parties, they may be monarchists, maybe Republicans, left wing, right wing. And these groups, uh, I think one of the, the reasons that up until now it has not been ultimately successful because this opposition, the secular democratic opposition, the mainstream groups have not been able to come together. That's also changing. In fact, about uh, a month or two ago, you had what was a historic gathering of these opposition figures. You had monarchists, Republicans. Uh, this was because of COVID, it was, it was virtual, it was on Zoom. But uh, in Iran or uh, was it th these are, These are the, about 50% of them were in exile and 50% were inside the country. And they were able to Zoom together? Yeah, they all, they all came together for the summit. You had, for example, the mothers of protesters killed uh, there. You had uh, Im imprisoned activists, you had uh, people on house arrest, You know. All 
all sending messages and they were participating along with exiled opposition leaders. So, you know, the head of one of the, the major monarchist party, the head of one of the major Republican, small, small R, lowercase r, Republican parties, um, all these groups sort of coming together. Um, and then probably the third category is, is, you know, sort of one person I think that the majority of Iranians look to, and that's Reza Pahlavi, who's the son of the Shah. Um, and has you know for forty years been an advocate for secular democracy. He's sort of a, a, a sort of a, a national moral leader. I would say sort of you know he is one person to whom people look to uh, for as a compass. Or, you know where are we going? And, and I think he is one of the main reasons that the path is sort of where we are now. He long advocated boycotting the elections. Just this last month, we saw Iranians finally boycott the election. He's always advocated uh, nonviolent civil disobedience. You've largely seen Iranians pay attention to that and not take up arms and uh, sort of in a Mandela or Gandhi-like uh, way. But is that going to work? I, I mean, you know, that worked for Mandela and for Gandhi because they had international support, yes. which gets us to the question of yes. what can we do to support yeah. these protesters? Well, I'll just say one thing on the nonviolent right. uh, uh, notion. The reason that I personally believe that I think that makes most sense is, you know, if you, if you thought that, okay, taking up arms would lead to a positive outcome, and morally, that would be defenseless. Okay, that's fine. Um, but I think the, the the notion is that it will ultimately end up being just more blood. You have this this armed group and that armed group, and they're fighting in the streets, and it, it leads to something close to perhaps a civil war, or if if not that, just vast bloodshed. And I don't think it leads to a positive democratic outcome after the fall of the regime. I think mass civil disobedience has a better chance of getting us there. But to your point, um, international solidarity is so important. And that's what's so, I think, shocking to Iranians or so, maybe not shocking, but disappointing is you saw the international support of the anti-apartheid movement. You right. saw the international support of the anti-communist movement in Eastern Europe and in Poland, solidarity, things like that. And Iranians are saying, you know, are we worth less? Are we are we not human like those people who are well, fighting I mean, for I freedom? I think that we're seeing that now with the Cubans as well, exactly. right? The Cubans, the Iranians. Yeah, the Belarusians. So the people who are under the jackboot of people that the U.S. or Europe wants to appease are are not, their blood doesn't run yeah. as blue as those that they don't want to appease. Yeah. You know? and, and, and I think and that that's a problem. It, here, it, right? it's, and your people, you know, we, we've had... Uh, Dissidents and activists from inside Iran, some who are on house arrest, some even in prison, they write letters to President Biden and say, please, you know, please stand with us in solidarity. Keep keep some sanctions on this regime. Keep the pressure on them. Help us. And, and they've been totally ignored. Um, you know, they're, it's, it's, it's shocking to them that they still they still look to America. I mean, as people all around the world, the Cubans, Belarusians, people anywhere, as you say, um, people in Hong Kong where they carry the American flag. They look to America as a symbol for freedom. How aware are they of what happens in the United States? So, for instance, if uh, if um, just as a possibility, if, if uh, Republican leaders were to have a you know a virtual rally in support of the Iranian people or something mm -hmm. like that, would they be aware of that? Would, would it be meaningful Abs to them? Absolutely. You know, uh, I mean, everything is partisan, unfortunately, in yeah. Washington to a degree that we've never seen before. So, if if the if the administration is trying to appease the Iranians in Vienna, and the and the GOP leadership in in the House or the Senate or wherever throughout the country were to stand with the Iranian people, that mm -hmm. would make a difference. It, it does make a difference. For example, and we've seen some of that actually recently. You saw, for example, Senator Marco Rubio mm -hmm. uh, 
stand in support. He actually tweeted in Persian in support of the Iranian people. Several elected members of the House have done that. But the Iranians aren't on Twitter, right? Uh, well, they're not. They're they're banned from Twitter um, because of these. Of course, the Ayatollah is still out right. on Twitter, and so is Javad Zarif and Hassan Rouhani. Um, but through VPNs and other means, but they're able Donald to access Trump it. Is. And Donald Trump is not on there as well. <laughs> um, but uh, they're able to access through through VPNs. But they often use unnamed accounts for fear of repression, obviously, and uh, and uh, you know being arrested and even killed for what they say. Um, but they see those things, and then those are also picked up in, for example, those illegal media outlets or banned media outlets. I should say that beam into Iran, they, they they say, look, you know, Congressman X or Senator Y is saying this. And, and it, it just shows, you know, I, I, I think back to the story of, of the Russian dissidents who were in the Soviet gulags. Right. And they said when President Reagan said, uh, you know, this is an evil empire and it will come down and we stand with the people of uh, the Soviet Union fighting for freedom. You know, there's this famous story that they're tapping out the story. Right. On, that was Sharansky. Yeah, exactly. Natan Sharansky. You know, it means a lot to dissidents in these countries just to hear this. Now, talk is not enough. And we can talk about that in a second. Yeah, exactly. But 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 even that it's it's a starting point because when when you're fighting against a regime that is taking everything from you, it even wants to force you how to think, to see that the leader and the leaders of the bastion of freedom, the shining city on the hill, don't even talk about you, ignore you. It's 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 totally demoralizing. It saps, you know, energy. Um, now, of course, they get energy from other places. They get sort of moral support from uh, from their own leaders, uh, from Iranian activists, this is from each other. Uh, but from Israel. Uh, I mean, we have, we have seen, for example, uh, Israeli officials uh, tweet in support. You know, there's there's this account, Israel Befarsi, or Israel in Persian, uh, which tweets uh, very actively. In fact, just last week, one of the moderators of the account was on one of these big uh, Persian language stations in London, Manoto, uh, for a program. Um, and so they see things like that, and it, and it's a, it is a it is a sort of source of of of, uh, of confidence boosting for them to see that. I remember that stand with a couple of years ago. I can't remember whether it was during the, the Trump. Years during the Obama years that when when did you have the when the water shortage in Isfahan when the when the yeah, uh, yeah I don't know if you remember the exact year but there's been so many right but it was it, so uh, then Prime Minister Netanyahu was drinking a bottle of mineral water and speaking to the Iranian people and saying. Um, we want to help you. We're the world leaders in desalination technologies. Yeah. We can help you drink this water, yeah. right? And um, and I think that it. I remember uh, reading that it it was like his that it was massively distributed. He may have even been giving it in Persian. Yeah. I think that you he, know you know p p because people of Iran don't you know as you and I talked about earlier, they don't have this enmity with the people of Israel. They don't have this enmity with the people of the United States. They want to just be literally a normal country, and that's impossible with the Islamic Republic. And as you say, especially when really specific issues like this are facing them, the lack of water, they're, you know, they're, they're serious people. They look and say, who's the best in the world at water desalination? The Israelis. Gosh, why don't we have, you know, why don't we have a good relationship with Israel so that we could drink water? It, it's not an issue of politics. It's just an issue of being human beings. Right. So they look to things like that and say, you know, in a normal, in a regular Iran, we would have be having Israeli experts fly from Tel Aviv to Tehran or Tel Aviv to uh, Khuzestan uh, to help us. Right. Um, as know, it was before 1979. As it was, exactly. Because, you know, I think a lot of Americans, even on the right, or, or maybe in particular on the right, I mean, they, they, there's a sense that America doesn't get it, you know, that we, that, you know, we as Americans do not want to get involved, right? Mm -hmm. We don't do nation building yeah. well. This is sort of a very, you know, 
a, a view that you heard mm-hmm. a lot among uh, the Trump supporters, mm-hmm. and it's reasonable after sure. Iraq, sure. Um, and it was a mashup. Sure. They tried to bring democracy. They tried to bring democracy to Afghanistan, and they left both countries and in humiliation. Mm-hmm. And Iran is rising in both of them, mm-hmm. and so they said, "What?" So the why is why is the situation with the Iranian people different from the situation mm-hmm. with the Shiites in Iraq? Mm-hmm. You know, with with the Iranian. Uh, di- the Iraqi diaspora mm-hmm. who were telling us, oh, yeah, it won't be a problem. You bring down Saddam and, and everything will be great. Mm-hmm. Why why should they even dare to support the mm-hmm. Iranian people in it's, America? It's, it's, it's a fantastic question. And it's, it's a two-part answer. The first is the method that we propose. Uh, and the second is a bit more specific about Iran, which I'll get to. In terms of the method, um, obviously, that's one of the biggest, when we are talking about supporting human rights and democracy in Iran, the biggest pushback we guys, well, we already did that in Iraq. And you know, we've been there, done that. And as you say, didn't turn out well. Um, we're not proposing anything similar to you know an, a U.S. military invasion of Iran. We're, in fact, very strongly against that because we don't think it will end up well. Um, uh, so what we propose, when we say this, this policy that we have, of, in addition to maximum pressure on the regime, maximum supports of the Iranian people, it can include very basic things. The provision of internet, uh, you know, the provision of, for example, a strike fund. So laborers who are going out and, and will, it's sort of the, the final death knell of the regime will be this broad-based labor strike, similar to what uh, the Khomeini used to, to take down uh, the Shah. Um, or solidarity. Yeah, used to or take solidarity, down exactly. The, the communist regime you know, but, in Poland. But this regime is so much more aggressive, so much more brutal than right. the, 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 the communist regime in Poland, mm-hmm. that if you, if you provide people with just sustenance and say, look, you are so brave and you're going out to strike and you're, you're facing the guns of the regime, we're going to ensure that your kids and your family can eat and have water. How much money do you need to you know, something like that? It's not significant. And, 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 and it would probably be on the order of millions of dollars. And, and the kicker is it wouldn't even necessarily, I mean, if, if, if the lawyers and treasury could work this out, you don't need to use U.S. taxpayer dollars. We're not proposing that. The Islamic Republic has so many assets abroad that are frozen for terrorism, for all these reasons. That money belongs to the Iranian people. That money from it's the fr- frozen so that the regime won't steal the money exactly. of the Iranian people. Exactly. So if you can take that money that's frozen, uh, or or these tankers that are confiscated for sanctions violations, and take a portion of that, or take that money and give it to the Iranian people. I'm not saying give it to this opposition group or that opposition group. Give it in a fund to the Iranian people so they can use. And of course, you figure out how to manage that. But that that can be done. We have experts who can do that. That's the type of support we're talking about. So the first reason it's different is we're not talking about an invasion. We're not talking about war. We're talking about supporting the Iranian people. And when you have those basic things, the internet, uh, this, for example, provision of strike fund, and you have an engagement with the opposition, that 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 allows a lot of things to happen. And I think that could lead to, to significant change sure. in Iran. And just my, the final point on why it's different, um, you know, Iran is, going back to the previous point, has existed as a country for 2,500 years. And so it's not like Iraq, where it has these sort of divisions and it's still dealing with a, a colonial, colonialist past of having been you know, drawn out on a map. Iran has existed as this nation state for thousands of years. Uh, and so to when it is free, eventually it will go back to you know, sort of its normal course of business. It's not going back to some, you know, some map that a British person drew you know, 100 years ago. Um, so it's different from other countries in the Middle East in that sense that we have this history of living as a unitary nation state. Uh, and, and finally, um, you know, these dictatorships that, obviously, especially uh, Saddam's Iraq, 
was a, you know, it was a secular dictatorship. So you had this sort of bubbling up thereafter of, of Islamist groups, Shia, uh, uh, Sunni, you know, Daesh, ISIS, and all these groups are sort of in Iraq. Um, in Iran, you, you've had the radical Islamism basically beat out of the country because for four years it's been forced on people. So you're not going to have this, this sort of growth of radical Islamist groups because the radical Islamist groups control the country right now and people are trying to get rid of them. Um, so that's another big difference between Iran and some of the other countries so in the region. So we're talking, it's August 2nd, 2021, and I think on August 8th, Ibrahim uh, Raisi is going yeah, to be coming yeah. in as, as president. Um, what are we supposed to expect? He's not a moderate. He's a hardliner. Yes, yeah. He's killed mil thousands and yes. thousands of people with yes. his, you know, he has their blood dripping from his yes. fingers. Um, what what do you foresee happening with the protests? What do you see for happening with the attempts really to uh, break down this regime, tear mm -hmm. it apart, take it down? When you have a butcher who is in charge of the regime, mm -hmm. I think I think Raisi's selection um, will change or should change. It can change more internationally than domestically because people still view Ali Khamenei as the source of their problems. They know Hassan Rouhani didn't really you know do anything for them. They know that uh, Raisi is you know every decision. Actually, can we just back this? Yeah. Was there a difference in the regime's treatment of the people between Rouhani and Ahmadinejad? Yes, it was worse under Rouhani. Uh, explain that. No, this, that's important. Yeah, Why do you it, say it, that? It is important because this is sort of this is the lie that's been told in Washington for about twenty years uh, by some of the groups you mentioned by this Iran lobby, the Islamic mm -hmm. lobby here, um, which is if we, if we deal with these reformists, it's better for the United States. It will lead to slow but sure democratization and, and the sort of provision of human rights in Iran. That mm -hmm. has been. A totally uh, a proven lie, uh, because in the eight years of the Rouhani administration, uh, you have seen some of the worst crimes in this regime's tenure. I mean, things that you haven't seen since the revolutionary period, where they were you know slaughtering people in jail cells. Uh, the, the first is we mentioned the protest November 2019, where they they literally were slaughtering people in the streets. I mean, it was like a war zone. There's this this horrifying video uh, in Mashar in Iran where protesters flee the streets, they flee security forces, and they fl go into a marsh and they're hiding in there. And you see a truck pull up, and you see. I think I saw that. And it's just machine gun fire, and you but there hear was screams. A lot of that. There was a lot of that, and so this is this is under a moderate. This is under a reformist. But the kind of argument might be that the reason that you didn't have these kinds of massacres under Ahmadinejad is that people wouldn't dare to rise up because they were too afraid of him, and that that might happen under IC as well, and therefore the repression will be less because the need to oppress will be smaller because people will be too scared to speak up. Uh, I don't think so. I think that, I think that you'll I think that will be disproven under the Rouhani administration. Uh, pardon me, the Raisi administration, because you're going to see people continue to come into the streets. Um, this is they said it, it's a process. You know, the civil disobedience movement is a process. We did have to sort of go through this reform. Reformist period, similar to other totalitarian dictatorships, uh, it doesn't so just like necessarily perestroika fall. And exactly, the, exactly, and you and you. Except there, they actually did open up, and then everything just fell. Exactly, uh, exactly. So this is sort of a process that you have to to go through. It unfortunately, um, and now we're seeing, I think, the death knells of the regime. And I, I, I don't know if it's going to be six months or one year or two years, whatever it's going to be. But this regime will fall because it simply is going to become a failed state unless well, unless it gets an assist from. The Biden administration right. and, the, and, and the Europeans. Right. And that those two, uh, there are two kinds of assists. One is nuclear weapons and the other one is sanctions relief. And I want That's to right. talk a second about sanctions relief and yeah. then move on to the nukes themselves. Um, you know, there had been uh, talk 
in 2013, 14, and then 15 with the implementation of the JCPOA was that, oh, the sanctions are just against the Iranian people, that they're the ones that are paying the price. And if we, if we take away the sanctions, then we won't be helping the regime per se. We're going to be helping the people of Iran eat, drink, and uh, make a living. And so this isn't really sanctions relief for the regime. Uh, so the first half of that question is, in, in 2015, the sanctions went away. What was, how did life change for the average Israeli, the average Iranian after that? It didn't change. It didn't get any better because the sanctions relief, uh, the billions of dollars that was given to the regime was just that it was to the regime. So you're exactly right. It was to, we were told by these groups. We were even told by the Obama administration. This was by Kerry. Yeah, by junk. This was going to help the Iranian people. It did not, not in any sense of the word. The money went to the regime, which was used to buy bullets to kill Iranians. It was used to buy missiles to be dropped on Syrian children. It was used to buy missiles for Hamas and Hezbollah to drop on Israelis uh, to kill American and soldiers and Houthis uh, in Yemen. That's where the money went. Um, and, you know, interestingly, the first of the, this sort of recent string of uprisings that I talked about, this sort of 2016, 2017 period onward, occurred in Iran when the U.S. was still in the JCPOA. Right. Uh, it was the Trump administration before he had pulled out of the deal. And so the, the Iranian people were very clearly frustrated and, and were saying on the streets, and one of their biggest chants was, which means our enemy is right here. They lie when they say it's America. In fact, in all these protests, uh, you will not see, or, or real protests, not the sort of the regime's fanfare, you won't see people ever chant against sanctions, against America. They're always chanting against the regime because they know that with sanctions, there is more pressure on them. You can't deny that. It, it, it makes their life more difficult and it's a cost. But what they say, and they say this explicitly, is we're willing to bear the cost of this so long as it helps us get rid of this regime. You know, my my friend and teacher, Michael Ledeen, who's also here in Washington, and he was really one of the first uh, voices in the United States, and I dare say worldwide, who's calling for support for the Iranian people to bring down the regime. And he said, you know, he likened it to the uh, prisoners, the inmates in Auschwitz, uh, who were saying, bomb the railway, bomb the crematorium. And they knew that they would die, but they also knew that that would save the lives mm -hmm of thousands and thousands of, of Jews who were going to be sent to be, be burned to death um, and uh, and gassed. And so they wanted they wanted the thing. And he said, this is the same with the Iranian people. They don't want sanctions relief. They want because the relief is going to the regime. That's right. It, it does. It doesn't come to them. You know, it, uh, anything that well, I mean, it's it's just so it, it's a uh, it's often called uh, a criminal cult. That's what this regime is. You know, it, it, it operates like a drug ring, you know, like a it cartel. Is a drug yeah, it is a drug ring. And it, it's a criminal crime family. It's all these things with a seat at the United Nations and with international recognition that now gets to sit across from an American negotiating team in Vienna. Um, no, they won't sit next to the Americans. They, right, all, they right. demand indirect negotiations because right. they won't deign to sit with that's American right. people. That's right. right. Um, but but this is, you know, the, the, the point is that the sanctions relief does not go to the Iranian people. Uh, any deal that's signed, it, it's only going to help the regime. When, when they're in these negotiations in Vienna, when they're grandstanding, they're very specific. They, they want the sanctions removed on what? On the Supreme Leader's office, on the Supreme Leader himself, on the IRGC, Quds Force. These are not things that would help the Iranian people. They're things that would help the regime. So this is very clearly an attempt to free up money for the Islamic Republic. It's, I mean, it's, they're getting to a point where they're not even making any bones about it. They're just clearly saying, we as a regime need money. See, that's the thing, because we started this talk 
uh, talking about what is the expansiveness, what, what, how much of, of the population of Iran uh, opposes this regime. And you said anywhere between uh, 70 and 85 percent, right? Something yep. like that. And, and it keeps going up and up and up. Yeah. And um, so really what you have sustaining this regime is brute force, right. right? And and one more thing, which is the nuclear weapons program. And, you know, I, I remember I was, uh, I gave this, uh, I did this interview. I wasn't the, inter I was being interviewed by this, uh, by this guy who's now the head of a very far left uh, um, party in Israel, Merits. He's the health minister, apropos mm -hmm. of nothing. Anyway, he had this show on foreign affairs, and he was talking to me about North Korea and um, and their nuclear program. And I said, now you can understand the Iranian threat. Nobody will dare do anything mm -hmm. to Pyongyang because they have nuclear weapons and they have ICBMs. Mm -hmm. um, so... Iran is now, they've been, the, the regime has been uh, enriching uranium to over 60% enrichment. Uh, they're sprinting to the nuclear uh, finish line. What, how do you view the nuclear program as um, somebody who, who supports the Iranian people against the regime? You know, the, 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 the nuclear threat posed by the Islamic Republic is, is a dual threat. Um, the first is the actual use of the bomb, which is, you know, there's, it's a very reasonable thing to say that they would use it. They right. would use it against the United States, use it against Israel, against some countries in the Persian Gulf. Um, it, it's a maniacal regime. Um, the larger threat, perhaps, in my view, is the insurance, which I think you're alluding to, that it buys for the regime. Um, because even without a nuclear weapon, and this is one of the main problems of the JCPOA, that it sort of swept everything else under the rug, the ballistic missiles, the regional terrorism, et cetera, it allows the, the sort of provision of a nuclear weapon allows the regime to continue the, those activities under a nuclear umbrella. Um, it, it allows them to continue funding the Houthis, uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, Bashar Assad, and Syria, all these groups with a nuclear bomb as an insurance policy, such as if anyone wants to attempt to stop them, the threat of escalation to nuclear conflict is there. So it's, it, it's, it's even more dangerous in what it allows the regime to continue to do with its other uh, sort of uh, terrorism in the Middle East with its ballistic missile program. So uh, it's a two-pronged threat, both of which are extremely dangerous. And, and I think that what's important to mention is that this regime, whether it actually wants to get it to use it or whether it wants to get it to use it as a bargaining chip, the threat or of both. it, or both, the threat of it acquiring one is going to be there as long as the Islamic Republic is in power. There is not going to be a deal that you can sign, uh, even the most airtight, the best deal, uh, the, be the, the nicest deal ever is not going to prevent this regime from getting, uh, from wanting to get a nuclear And I think that that's one of the things that you were talking about that I think it's worth highlighting now as we sort of reach the, the closing moments of this talk is that when you know the the do the the desire to believe that there are, that it's a two-headed monster that there's a, or a Janus-like uh, face that there's a good side and the bad side the yin and the yang, and there isn't right. No. I mean, it, 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 yeah, there's just one. There's just one regime. What is it? Does it? How does it? How does it view its role role in the world? Mm -hmm. If they if Khamenei was able to. Um, get his fantasy life into mm -hmm. reality, what what would it make him? What would he be? Where would his position be yeah. in this world? It, it would be, so this is a, it's an excellent question. There's, there's a, um, you know, most 
elected leaders view themselves as the head of their country, which is what they're elected to do. Obviously, Khamenei is not elected. Right. He's selected. Uh, and in his view, selected by God for that position. Uh, and so he doesn't view himself as the head of the Iranian nation, or as we'd say in Persian, the Melat, but rather the head, the head of the Ummat, the Islamic nation. The Ummat islam Exactly. And so he views it as his responsibility, just as Khomeini did, uh, to export the Islamic revolution. Um, the the Sudur Enqalab, the exportation of the revolution, is a requirement of this Velayat-e the, the guardianship of the jurist, which uh, is governing in lieu of God, in lieu of the return of the hidden Imam. That's that's what they have uh, in, in the in the constitution, in their sort of uh, bylaws, if you will. That is their responsibility. So he and his ideal world would conquer the would conquer the world and 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 rule until God and the hidden Imam return. And what are his first goals? Are his first goals to take over Arabia? Does he want to go after Saudi Arabia? Does he want to destroy the Sunnis? I mean, I think though he'll, he'll go wherever he can. That's why you. That's why you see the Islamic Republic's influence now in Africa, in South America, in South America, in Venezuela. Uh, you see it across the uh, Arab nations in the Persian Gulf. Uh, you see it in Southeast Asia. You see it in Europe, uh, North you know, Africa, and North all over the place. And so they will go uh, anywhere. One of the main ways I think they probably recognize that they won't be able to actually conquer the world uh, in that sense. Um, but one of their main goals is to sow chaos wherever they can because they thrive in chaos. This is a this is a status which scares us uh, as Americans, uh, scares Europeans, scares any normal person. It scares Iranians. It scares the people of the Middle East. But for the Islamic Republic, it's it's a state in which they thrive um, because they can rise to power. They can, you know, do their machinations however they like. So that's that's their goal is to sow as much chaos as possible. But the National Union for Democracy in Iran, when when you when we when Trump was uh, the president and. He and then Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the maximum pressure strategy for dealing with Iran. How did you guys look at that? Did, and do you and when you assess it now in, in hindsight with mm -hmm. the Biden administration re-adopting mm -hmm. Obama's appeasement policy, mm -hmm. what do you think it could have happened uh, in a second Trump mm -hmm. turn? And I, I, I would describe it this way as necessary but not sufficient. Uh, in the sense that you obviously have to pressure the Islamic Republic. You have to sanction its leaders for terrorism, for human rights violations, for killing American soldiers, for a whole number of things, whether you go from a national security perspective or human rights perspective. And they're both equally important and indivorceable, in my opinion. Uh, and now as we look back, you say, of course, this was the, the correct policy. But then you get to the insufficient part. There right. was still, it seems, and, and maybe there was a difference between Secretary Pompeo and President Trump because of the sort of the hangover from Iraq and things like that that you mentioned. Um, but there was still at least a, a public um, declaration that we want the Islamic Republic to act like a normal country. That is a fallacy, in my view. It is never going to act like a normal country because it's not a normal regime. Um, so the pressure was necessary, um, but it was still insufficient because it, it could have gone further. And perhaps had it had time, it would have gone further. Uh, we don't know. Um, perhaps in a future Republican administration or, uh, I mean, as I say, we're nonpartisan. It's our, it's our, it's our, our prayer that President Biden would enact this policy um, where you pressure the regime and you support the Iranian people. And, and that's based on understanding that try as we might and hope as we might, this regime will not change its behavior. Um, behavior change is a fallacy. Uh, changing of regime is the only way forward. So the maximum pressure uh, was critical. Um, it has it, these sanctions do have an impact, even if even if the officials don't ever come to the United States, don't have assets here. There's a psychological impact that it has. Uh, it prevents others from joining their ranks, joining the ranks of the IRGC, the SIPA, as we'd say. Um, so it was a critical policy. It was the strongest 
this policy against this regime, against this murderous regime that we've had from any American administration. And so, you know, it's difficult to criticize when it's been the best we've ever had in that sense. But, but it wasn't it, enough. It wasn't enough. And and that brings us to to Israel. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Israel uh, is a small country. It's a regional power, but it's it's a small country, and it and it has a it, we pack a punch, but it's not a superpower mm -hmm. punch. Uh, is how do you view what Israel is doing? What can Israel do more? Mm -hmm. And how important would it be uh, in terms of uh, helping the Iranian people? Could it be decisive? Is it just not going to? I think it. You know, it. it, uh, it Israel has done an excellent job of holding the regime accountable for its terror. Uh, obviously, Israel is a very strong red line when, it's, when it comes to its own citizens, uh, as it should. Um, but again, I go back to the sort of that that second waiting for the second shoe to drop, which is the maximum support. I th and I don't obviously know all the Israeli technical capabilities. But what but are you capable? What do you What do you need exactly? I, I think I think there are a few things that that Israelis could do if if they have the ability, which I assume they do. They're very obviously technologically, you know, uh, uh, you know. Uh, remarkable country in that sense. Um, the provision of internet would be one, given that it's geographically closer to... What do you mean by the provision of so, internet? So there, there is internet in Iran. Uh, there is, but, it, but the, for example, one thing that the regime does, whenever they're protests, they immediately shut the internet off. They'll either filter it or they'll simply shut the, all the internet off. Okay. And so, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible for us to imagine that you take out your phone and you open Twitter and it just doesn't work. That's simply how it is, unfortunately. Um, so given the assets that uh, Israel obviously has inside the country, uh, given the recent episodes we've seen over the past several years, if it were able to, uh, using those assets and assets in the region, help to provide internet for the Iranian people, that would be huge. If uh, another thing, if it were, for example, in the moment of a huge national uprising, be able to use its capacity and its assets inside the country to take uh, the regime's security forces, commanding control centers uh, and communication networks offline so that they can't communicate with one another and say, okay, go to this alley or this street and, you know, take out the protesters there. If they could, if they could give the Iranian people help, give the Iranian people a fighting chance. That's what we're really asking for, uh, is for uh, countries abroad to help level the playing field because the Iranian people are out there with aspirations for hope, for freedom, and they're up against a brutal regime. And, and I do believe that at the end of the day, even if there is no international support, the Iranian people will succeed and they will get rid of this regime. But support from free countries, from democracies like the United States, like Israel, like the Europeans, if they would ever do something like this, will set up a really fruitful, in my view, relationship for the post-Islamic Republic Iran. And we can get to you know, a place where you have Israeli uh, scientists coming to Iran and Iranian students coming to study in Israel and just having normal relationships, which is what I think the people of both countries want. And so it's, it's uh, you know, this is just setting up basically a, a productive future for the, few, the, the, the two wow. countries and, and, and completing, you know, the historical cycle. Of course, we have this ancient relationship, Iranians and Jews, um, uh, going back to uh, King Cyrus and Queen Esther. Yeah. And, uh, you know, sort of completing that circle, I think, is, uh, is a unique opportunity. It would be we we have a lot to work towards yes. and we just hope that we can do it in time yes you know absolutely. all right well thank you so thank much thank you so Karen. much for your time it was my pleasure we can do this today thank, thank you. you guys see we can do different mediums with this carolyn glick middle east news hour and we'll do more i think we might do another show like this next week because i'll be back in washington and so thank you so much thank for this very, very much, special carolyn glick middle east news hour and god bless the iranian people and let us all pray and work towards the day that iran will be free and we'll all be able to go visit there at the end of corona Indeed, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no waste mask
masks and no nothing. A, a corona-free and a free Iraq. Exactly. Corona-free, free Iraq. Exactly. Okay. All right. Thank, thank you, you very much.